Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. How many people here for the first time tonight? Some new faces. Welcome. Welcome back to everyone else. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. I'd like to begin class by uh, asking you to um, connect with each other for a minute before I lead the meditation and give a talk. In service of Against the Stream and Buddhism, a, a core tenant of the Buddha's teaching and Buddhism is developing community and meeting and connecting. And uh, sometimes it's phrased as drawing near to the wise making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with people who are at least trying to be wise. Um, so hopefully this is a place where you have the opportunity to meet some cool people and, and start to get to know each other rather than just meditating in silence and then bouncing, but starting to make some connections. Um, I'm going to talk, I'm going to start tonight a probably what will turn into a several week series on mindfulness the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path and the primary meditation technique that the Buddha taught and encouraged for freeing ourselves from the causes of suffering, mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, uh, kind, investigative awareness is sort of my, when I say mindfulness, that's what I mean, present time, investigative, that quality of inquiring, investigating, uh, with an attitude of friendliness or kindness, metta, loving kindness, attitude uh, in our mindfulness. And um, non-judgmental is key. That when we're mindful, we're not judging what's happening as right or wrong or good or bad, but just what's happening. Letting go of the, um, this is bad, or this is good, or this is... Uh, the, the place where mindfulness does direct us is to become aware of, uh, non-judgmentally become aware of, is it pleasant or unpleasant? And then seeing that difference between acknowledging, oh, this is unpleasant, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, or this is very pleasant, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. So we're trying to develop that discernment, present time awareness of what's happening, how it feels without judging it, without judging ourselves for feeling whatever we're feeling. So I'm going to get into it. I'm inspired. I have a text that we picked up when we were in Thailand um, that the monks chant, and, and it's, it's how the Buddhist monks in the Thai forest tradition um, practice mindfulness. And, I, and as I look at it, there's a bunch of pieces in there that I often don't teach. I kind of, I do a, a little bit of an overview and a little bit of generalization of mindfulness. But over these next few weeks, we're going to dig into the kind of all of what the Buddha historically and what the monks practice at mindfulness, which is a bit more in depth than I usually guide. So you'll have an opportunity to learn a bit more about mindfulness than, than usual around here. So I thought for the um, small kind of interactions to begin with, there's this practice that we could do and it works best in dyads on kind of one-on-one, -on -one, but you can try, we can try to do it in groups. We can do groups of three or four. And at home, I can't really put people in dyads. So I'll, I'll do small groups. And it's kind of out loud mindfulness. So usually I give you a topic and you talk about, you know, 
talk about sex or talk about suffering or talk about something. So tonight, the topic is your direct experience right now. So say that we were doing it um, and I, I was going first. Um, the practice is just saying everything that you're aware of. So I would just start and say, uh, I'm aware of my hands on my legs. I'm aware of feeling self-conscious of speaking my experience. I'm aware of my breath coming in. I'm aware that I just raised my hand when I said my breath is coming in. I'm aware of seeing. I'm aware of a little unpleasantness around the self-consciousness of the uh, intimacy of uh, sharing my direct experience with you. Get it? I'm aware of real-time mindfulness and reporting it to each other. What I'm aware of right now is hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, right? And, and But what's coming up right now? I'm aware of like, I'm doing this weird thing with my hands. Why are my hands, fucking feels weird. Why do I keep moving my hands? <laughs> so two or three people, one person will go first. At home, you guys have to do this in the Zoom groups. One person will go first. The other people just listening. And then when you're done, and only take like 90 seconds, do like a minute and a half, which is plenty of time. Do like a minute and a half of reporting your experience to each other and then pass to the next person, minute and a half and then pass. So maybe you'll have three. Try not to do groups bigger than three if possible. There might be one group of four. Um, make it make sense. Any questions about what I'm asking you to do? Report to each other what you're mindful of in this moment. Okay, so go for it and I'll open the Zoom groups. Did everybody get a chance uh, to do that at home? I don't know how it worked in the Zoom breakout rooms. But uh, just an experiment and, and an excuse to talk to each other and also to um, bring attention to this topic of, of awareness of what's happening as it's happening, uh, which is such a core practice. And usually we don't have to uh, put that added pressure of actually saying it, um, but it can be quite useful to say it or sometimes um, after you meditate to sit down and write everything that you remember that just happened to journal about everything. It can just kind of bring more focus, more attention to your mindfulness. Um, so I think that I'll just lead my meditation. And then after the meditation, we'll go through the text and look at how the monks talk about it and have some discussion about what's in there that maybe I don't include uh, usually. And, um, and anyways, we'll have some discussion. So find a way to sit that's meditative, upright. Releasing tension in your body so that you're relaxed in the upright posture, allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Establishing a intention to be friendly, kind, patient, accepting towards your mind, towards your body, 
So it's all of the experience and meditation, non-judgmental, friendly, present time awareness. Begin by bringing mindfulness to the breath, breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Feel the sensations of the breath. Become aware of the natural rhythm of the breath. No need to try to control it or breathe any certain way, but if the breath is Deep, no, this is a deep breath, or if it's shallow, be aware of the depth, the duration of each breath. something draws your attention away from the sensations of the breath, just acknowledge it, thinking or hearing, and then come back, choosing to place our attention on the breath, breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out.
who are brand new to mindfulness, using the breath as the anchor to the present time experience is useful. Important part of the training, keep coming back to the breath. Keep ignoring your mind, your thoughts. Let them be in the background. If you care to explore further the instructions, invite us to experience the body as parts. Bringing mindfulness to skin, all of the body covered in skin. Do you feel any sensations in your skin? Hands and feet, arms and legs head and face, trunk of the body. And then entering beneath the skin, perhaps visualizing or feeling the flesh of the body, the muscles. Some of the muscles slightly tensed in order to stay upright. The veins and arteries. The organs, bringing awareness to the heart beating, perhaps you can feel it. Awareness of the lungs breathing, stomach, intestines, bladder, bowels, kidney, spleen, liver. Bringing awareness that this body has all of these factors, all of these parts. Bringing awareness to the skeleton that is sitting here, surrounded by flesh and blood, held together by cartilage. Covered in skin. Mindfulness of the body. Present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness of the body. And as you're aware of the body breathing and sitting and all of the parts, you may also be aware of the feeling tone. What is feeling pleasant in your body right now? What do you experience, perceive as unpleasant, painful, disagreeable, uncomfortable? 
And how much of the body can you feel, become aware of, you know, it's there, but it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. What we refer to as neutral feeling tone. The next aspect is feeling the body, becoming aware, contemplating the body as the four elements. Mindfulness of the air element with each breath. This body with all its parts that is also porous, the skin that breathes, not just the nose and mouth and lungs, but the whole Skin is a breathing organism. The air element that oxygenates the blood. Becoming aware of the earth element in the bones, the heaviness, the solidity, the contact with your chair, your cushion, the element of earth right here in our body, partially made of this carbon, this earth element. And becoming aware of the heat or fire, warmth. The body's normal average temperature, 98.5 degrees in this body. Quite hot actually, 98.5. internal heat. And lastly, the water element Almost 80% of this body is water, it's liquid. You can feel it in the saliva, 
become aware that all of the muscles, even the bones, all of the organs, filled with fluid, filled with the saline salt water that makes up this human body. The last part of this mindfulness of the body meditation is bringing awareness to the impermanent nature of the human body. This body that is temporary, that is subject to aging, sickness, and death. This body that's so much alive right now, the signs of life with each breath, each heartbeat. But that is destined to become a corpse, lifeless. Becoming mindful of the impermanent nature of the body as we reflect on the body laying lifeless, a corpse on a charnel ground. And we reflect that we are not exempt from death. This too is our destination. Eventually the body will stop breathing, the heart will stop beating. And if left to nature, the body will begin to decay, to decompose. Imagine a corpse, several days dead, the elements beginning to disperse. The body begins to dry up. As a reflection on the preciousness of life, we turn towards death. Imagining a corpse several days, dead, decomposed, falling apart, out in the open, where the maggots, the birds, the animals would become eating the flesh.
and eventually not much would remain, just a skeleton. The skeleton would begin to break up if left out to the elements. These elements in the body return to the four elements of the world. Reflecting to ourselves, I'm not exempt from this reality, this destiny. Mindfulness of life with each breath while continuing to be aware of the impermanent nature of life. Spending the last few minutes just coming back to the simple focus of the breath, signs of ongoing life, breathing in, the breath oxygenating the blood, the blood flowing through the body, oxygenating the mind, allowing it to continue working All of the parts of the body need air. Pay attention to each breath as though it were your last, with that kind of preciousness. Completely letting go of the past and the future. Just this body here now, breathing, sitting, feeling.
Before I get into the talk, the text that we're going to go through, any questions from your direct experience of the instructions or how to work with the experience that you're having while you're meditating? If you have a question at home, you can raise your hand in the reactions tab at the bottom or anybody in the room, please, Mark. And my brain just went with that. It was really difficult, loving kindness to bring it back to being like, come back to this, come back to maybe not just the breath, but then actually to the skeleton. Um, Where'd it go? Um, I started like it was daydreaming at some point and then trying to pull it back. I feel like with other meditations, it didn't happen as much. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, for those of you at home that probably couldn't hear Mark's question, he said that um, when, you know, with the breath, when there's that focus, it's, you know, you can really like stay there and come back and you can use it as a, but then when you start kind of, um, and it's like a visualization almost, you're like imagining your body and you're imagining your organs and you're, you're using your mind and you're sort of in your thinking mind. And then your thinking mind can just be like, well, let's think about some other shit. <laughs> Because they're not ignored, right? Like he's not, they're not ignoring me right now. Because often we're just ignoring our thoughts. But it's in this where it's an engaged reflection, visualization. We're thinking about my skin. I'm thinking about my organs. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking about my stomach. And then I'm thinking I'm hungry. And then what's for dinner? And all of a sudden I'm like at the taco stand. <laughs> and I was, oh, I'm not here anymore. Now I'm planning or I'm remembering or I'm. <clears throat> so yes that's not not uncommon you know once we're when we're engaging the mind in that kind of reflection and these are important aspects of the mindfulness instructions um and the more we do it the more we'll be able to kind of say like okay no i'm just going through the uh, there's an actual list, 32 parts of the body. And now I'm going through the four elements of the body. And the more you, with repetition, the more you do it, the more you'll be able to uh, stay focused with it. And then there's also this humility with meditation, with mindfulness. Like you don't do it perfect. You get lost in fantasy or planning or remembering. And part of the non-judgmental quality is like, okay, lost in it identified with the mind remembering planning fantasizing come back and you come back and you feel a breath or you feel your spleen <laughs> or your you know bowels or whatever the foot you know you come back to the body or the like oh where's our fire element okay earth element you know you come back and you feel it for a little bit and you investigate it and then you're gone again and then you come back so much of meditation is returning is starting over and returning and returning and returning and almost nobody um, is able to stay completely totally present the whole time uh, so that's just what we're doing we're trying to be present and investigate and then we're getting lost in thought and then we're coming back and then we're coming back coming back coming back and it's easier when you have a 
simple object like the breath or like a phrase, like the meta phrases or something um, to stay with and then to come back to. Then when you're doing these a little bit more, like I probably just gave you like 27 things to do. <laughs> pay attention to your breath, pay attention to your skin, pay attention to your muscles, pay attention to your, and it's just like, there's, it's a long list that is given here. Um, but over the years of meditation, you'll become more familiar with it. I feel like meditation, I use this um, analogy of driving a stick shift, which isn't the best analogy for people these days who don't drive stick shifts. Uh, I heard not that long ago that like less than 5% of automobiles in America are uh, manual, like 95% of automobiles are now automatic transmissions. But it's a better, it's better like for driving uh, where you have a clutch and a gas and a brake and gears and you have to put it in gear and you have to let the clutch out and you have to also be you know driving like holding on to the uh steering wheel with at least one hand and you want to check your mirrors and like i have a teenager who's learning to drive right now and like it's a lot actually to learn how to drive there's a lot going on especially if you have to work a clutch and shift gears and know when to do that but once you learn how to do it you right then you just drive meditation's a lot like that too there's a lot going on. There's, you know, 27 things to pay attention to. Once you've been doing it for a few months or a few years, then you're just like, okay, this is what I do. It took a while to learn the 27 things that I need to do here. Um, but now that I know how to do it, I sit down and I do it. And my mind wanders and I come back and I get lost and I come back over and over. Anything else? Any other? meditation question comments okay let me get into this text did you have one Eric? yeah I did. um what i notice for myself every time i meditate is i end up in this this dream state every single time it's like i'm not planning i'm not doing anything i'm in my meditation and i'm, I'm scanning my body, you know, in this particular meditation, or I'm, I'm using the mantra, I love you, I'll always love you, and I'll always love you, you know, and as I go, then boom, like, the thoughts almost go away, and I'm in like a dream state, I'm not sleeping, I'm conscious of that, but then when I'm snapped out of it, then I have to go back into that mantra, is this, is this a common thing for people, or, or am I, I don't want to put a, a label on it like you said um, it's wrong or it's it's not you know I, yeah. I just don't know like do you hear about this yeah okay it's uh is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral are you asking me it's pretty pleasant it's pretty pleasant yeah <laughs> and is there still some awareness of your body or is the body kind of is it still there but in the background or no awareness of my body no body no body and i i really when we were on our journey, I noticed that like the body was gone. Yeah. And I was just in my consciousness at that point. Well, do you feel sleepy? You feel like a dream state. Yeah, I feel like a dream state. I think I'm always sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know what's happening. And how many other people have something like that happen often in meditation? So it's not, not a lot, but some people do. There, there's a few hands behind you. Um, so I don't know exactly. It's your experience. So you just accept it of like, this is, this happens a lot. Now, 
this is probably not what's happening, but just in case it is, I'll, I'll tell you that in some of the descriptions of the jhanas, the concentration states, especially when you're um, no longer can feel your body, you enter into a place of neither consciousness nor unconsciousness, and it's a very high state. It's a very high attainment, like people meditate for decades trying to experience what you're experiencing. <laughs> so may, it's probably not what's happening. <laughs> But maybe, maybe you're just really fucking good at this. <laughs> Possibly you're dissociating. I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, dis probably dissociating, but maybe Jana. <laughs> better to not uh worry about it too much and then you know uh so much of what we're trying to do here is come back to your body come back ground in your body ground in the earth ground in the elements maybe some of these reflections will help you come back to i'm here this is a physical body i'm here because that's what you know unlike some meditation you know i'm joking with you some um but certainly uh there's meditation techniques and traditions that it's all about transcending the body and going off into some astral projection plane right which you know which is happening for you a little bit naturally but buddhism has this kind of opposite perspective which is the highest form is being embodied being here being present with what you're feeling and how you're responding to what you're feeling, right? All of this emphasis on first foundation, mindfulness of the body. So just put a bit more effort into like feeling your ass on the chair and feeling your hands and your, um, you know, resting in your lap and come back to like, I'm here, there's a body here, you know, this dreamlike state. Maybe it's a little sleepiness, maybe it's a little torpor, that hindrance of torpor, uh, which means like kind of sleepiness and um dreamlike state and put more oh, i want to come back to here without judging it but i want to come back to here make sense yes thank you yeah. nate go ahead last question or comment yeah super quick you said 27 things is are there actually 27 things or you just throwing a number out there i'm just throwing a number out okay good <laughs> disregard that <laughs> I mean, we could count it up. I didn't go through. Um, I didn't go through it. And as we look at this, we could look at how many different instructions there are that that you know the Buddha gave. Um, but you know, it's breath. Uh, there's the four elements, right? So that's five. Thirty-two parts of the body, so that's uh, thirty-seven things. Um, there's like, I didn't do all of them, but I think there's five different stages of the corpse that we reflect on. So that's forty three um at least 43 and probably you know probably more when you really get dig into um part of this uh, instruction on the first foundation of the body is also the uh, four postures knowing if you're sitting mindfulness of sitting or standing or walking or laying down so the four postures so then that gets us to 57 or where, wherever we are, 47. Um, so it's, I haven't done the math, 
but there's a lot, a lot of instructions, even just in this first part of mindfulness. Okay, so the I'm going to share with you, and I'll probably stop and do some commentary, and then I'll uh, I'll break it down into some um, sections, and I'll ask you if it makes sense to you, and if you have any questions about it. Um, and so this uh, this is this chanting book that I got at the monastery in Northeast Thailand. Some of some of you are with me. Um, and this is what the monks chant, and these are direct translations from what's called the Pali Canon. Pali is the closest language that the Buddha spoke, and Canon means, you know, collection of teachings, and they call them uh, suttas, um, and sutta, sutta means sewn to, like, it's the same as a suture, like stitches, sutures. Sutta means uh, that it, they were sewn together, they were written down and sewn together on palm leaves originally 2,500 years ago or something like that. And then and they were originally chanted in Pali, translated into uh, Sinhalese, Sri Lankan, and then translated into English. These are Thai forest tradition monks, so probably some of it was also from Pali to Sri Lankan to Thai back to English. Um, a lot of these monks that, that I study with um, know the Pali language. Pali is a dead language. It's kind of like Latin, like it's not spoken, but the teachings are recorded in it. Like, like, you know, like nobody actually fucking has a conversation in Latin. People don't have conversations in Pali. It's kind of, it's a dead language, but it's a, the Buddhist language. So the monks and different scholars learn it. And then that way they can go to the original teachings and translate them and say like, this is what this mean, word means. And this is how we can translate it into English. Um, now, all of this is in English. There's a few words that I might have to, um, define but mostly it's in english and it there is a time in the buddha's life when um he's asked should we keep the teachings in pali and uh you know should we keep it in like in, a, in the traditional language and should we teach people to speak this language and he said absolutely absolutely not translate the dharma the teachings into whatever language uh the people speak that you're speaking to and make sure that you actually use the idiom, the language, the slang of the people that are listening to you so that it so that they can make it their own. And so there's a, a strong traditional emphasis on um, teaching in a way that we can understand in English. Okay, so this teaching starts with thus have I heard. Now, um, it says, thus have I heard on one occasion, the blessed one, the Buddha, in the Kuru country, there was a town of the Kurus and the Kama Sadama. There the blessed one addressed the bhikkhus. Uh, bhikkhus is the name for monastics, monks. It said, thus bhikkhus, bonte. The bhikkhus replied to the blessed one and the blessed one said this. Now, anytime a teaching starts, this is a little bit Buddhist nerd shit, but I'm going to explain it to you anyways. Anytime a teaching starts with thus I have heard or thus have I heard, it means that it's um, one of the suttas that was written down uh, or chanted and memorized based on the Buddha's attendant Ananda being present there and memorizing what the Buddha said. Ananda was the Buddha's, I think he was his nephew. He's like nephew or cousin, I think nephew. 
um, some relative who became a monk after the Buddha, after Siddhartha became the Buddha and started the Sangha. And uh, Ananda was his uh, sort of, you know, attendant, right-hand assistant. And story is, Ananda had a photographic memory. And it's a real thing. People actually do have photographic memories. But Ananda could just like, no matter what the Buddha said, that the, uh, Ananda could just remember it and would re remember sort of word for word, because there's always this question. I don't know if you want to know this, but there's always this question when you start to dig into like, who was the Buddha? What did he teach? How do we know this is real Buddhism? How do we know this is reliable? And then you start to find out, some of you are going to find out right now, that for the first 200 years of Buddhism, it wasn't written down. It was just chanted. And they, you know, like all of that 57 things I just said about mindfulness, that shit wasn't written down for the first 200 years of Buddhism. They just chanted it. They just said, this is what you do. And this is a chanting book. This is how they, they memorized it. Um, and it was just a, an oral tradition. They taught each other and then they repeated it over and over and committed it to memory and then taught the next person who repeated it over and over and committed it to memory. Now, 200 years later, when they wrote it down, finally, a couple hundred years later, all the Buddhists got together and they said, you know, we're already having some discrepancies um, because like that group over here is chanting it this way and that group over here is chanting it this way. And, and people are starting to change it and to ad lib and to do commentaries. And we're, we're starting to lose the core teachings of the Buddha. Let's write it down. And so then they got together and they got all of these, I think, hundreds of groups together and they got as close as they could and they finally wrote it down. And that's what we call the Pali Canon. So I don't think it's totally unreliable, but it's not 100% reliable. We can't, like, I'm guilty and Buddhists all over the world are guilty of saying, well, this is what the Buddha taught. We don't really know hundred percent what the Buddha taught. If, if I was being, and sometimes when I'm being more careful, I'll say like, this is what the Sutta says the Buddha said. I'm always guilty. And all, I think most Buddhist teachers are guilty of being like, well, this is what the Buddha said. How the fuck would I know what the Buddha said? <laughs> I know what's written down 200 years later. You know, it's not, not that different than the Bible. You know, Jesus didn't write shit down. A bunch of other people have been like, yo, this is what he said. <laughs> Same thing in Buddhism. This is what he said. And Ananda, thus have I heard, said, I remember it verbatim, word for word. And here it is. So. And they call, you know, in this, I don't know what it is in Pali, but I don't know about you and your kind of get your religious hackles up. But in some of this, they'll call the Buddha the blessed one. Or sometimes they'll say the Lord Buddha. And, you know, it gets a little religious and some of us are like, oh, blessed one, Lord Buddha. Like I'm here because I'm not interested in religion. I like this anti-establishment Buddhist stuff. But, you know, some of the, you know, especially the monks, it's like the old time 2600 year tradition of religion. And, and they're, you know, they're, you know the, the Buddha is the blessed one, the Lord Buddha. So this is what the dude said, supposedly. 
bhikkhus, monks, this is the one-way path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the passing away of pain and dejection, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four establishments of mindfulness. So I just want to pause right there. Like it's a big promise. This is the path, the one way. If you follow this path, it will take you to only one direction. It will purify you. It will help you surmount sorrow and lamentation. It will end pain. Now, they use this term dejection a lot in, in this translation. Um, I would translate it as aversion. The avert dejection is like, I don't know, feels clunky or just not a word that I would use much. But what, you know, the, another way to hear that is uh, aversion to pain. It, it, you know, it will free you from aversion to pain. For the attainment of the true way, the realization of nibbana. Nibbana means enlightenment. Nibbana literally is a cooking term in, in India that means to remove the pot from the fire. Now, the fire in Buddhist philosophy is greed, hatred, and delusion. The causes of suffering, clinging, greed, craving, aversion, hatred, resentment, and delusion, the self-centeredness of I, me, and mine, the delusion of a permanent self. So Nibbana, you know, was saying mindfulness will take you to a place where you're free from greed, hatred, and delusion. It will take you to a place where you're no longer getting burned. You're, you're, you can remove yourself out of the fire of samsara, the fire of greed, hatred, and delusion. The four establishments of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, monks, one dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful, having subdued, he says, longing and dejection. I would translate it as craving and aversion. It's just the way I talk about it. Longing and dejection. Crave, having subdued craving and aversion. In regard to the world. One dwells contemplating feelings and feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having let go of clinging and aversion in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating the mind and the mind, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having subdued, clinging and aversion in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having subdued, longing and dejection in regard to the world. So those are the four. Four foundations, the body, the feeling tones, the mind, and what they're translating here as phenomena. Also translated as the Dhamma, where that's the fourth foundation, the phenomena. Any questions about that so far, four foundations? Okay, we're gonna dig into the first foundation. Now they do something here that I don't like. In the traditional um, four foundations, 
it's the Satipatthana. So in the Eightfold Path, when the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path is just what is called the Satipatthana, which are the four foundations of mindfulness, and that whole um, preliminary thing of like, the, here's the way, it's the four foundations. They start with the teachings on Anapanasati, which aren't traditionally included in the Satipatthana. Sati means mindfulness, Patana four foundations. Anapana means breathing, Sati mindfulness. So these are two different teachings, the four foundations of mindfulness and the mindfulness with breathing. Now, breathing is the first part of the first foundation in the Satipatthana, but traditionally, um, when, when explaining the four foundations of mindfulness, we wouldn't start with the Anapana instructions, but that's what they do here in the monastery. Can I clarify that for anybody? Yeah. I know it's a fucking lot. There's like, like three Buddhist nerds in the room. They're going like, oh, this is cool. I can, <laughs> I can see it. And everybody else is like, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> So this first section here, I believe, is the Anapanasati, mindfulness with breathing. How does a monk dwell contemplating the body and the body? Here a monk goes to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down having folded their legs crosswise, straightens their body and establishes mindfulness in front of oneself. So instructions on posture. Yes, we sit in chairs here at home. You're probably in a chair. Some people sit on the cushions. There is an instruction here that says, when, if you want to med meditate, go to the forest, the foot of a tree, or an empty space. Now, this is our empty hut. Against the stream is our empty hut. It's just a big empty room for us to meditate in. And it says, having folded the legs crosswise, st straightens our body and establishes mindfulness. You don't have to do this. Now, my, here's, my, here's my commentary. That makes a lot of sense for the monks who live in the forest and don't have chairs. <laughs> Personally, I don't believe there's anything spiritual about sitting cross-legged. Now, there's a couple of benefits to it. And I don't think it's like mindfulness benefits. You know what the benefit is? It hurts. And putting yourself in an uncomfortable posture is really good for meditation. So there, that, the one benefit, you know, some people like after you sit like this for a while, it becomes quite comfortable. But there is some encouragement. I, you know, I don't care. I buy the chairs for everybody to sit in. Um, it's fine to sit in a chair. But there is something about saying, like, actually, I want to learn to uh, be with the aches in my knees and my back, and I want to develop compassion for discomfort. So sitting on a cushion will actually give me more discomfort to develop compassion for. So that's, you know, one reason. But my sense is this is a teaching for homeless people um, that were, you know, like the monks were living, you know, out in, out in the forest. So if you're out in the forest, go to a tree and cross your legs and sit upright. If you're, you know, at home, sit in your lazy boy. It's totally okay. 
Having folded the legs crosswise, straighten their body, establish mindfulness. Just mindful, he breathes in. Now, this is all male, but I'm going to try to. Just mindful, one breathes in. Mindful, one breathes out. Breathing in long, one understands, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one understands, I breathe out long. One understands. Uh, breathing in short, one understands. I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one understands. I breathe out short. Thus, one trains oneself. I will breathe in, experiencing the whole body. So that instruction, that initial sit down, bring mindfulness to your breath. And if it's long, know it. And if it's short, know it. No judgment. You know, unlike some like yogic maybe at yoga you've done some pranayama or some different kinds of breath meditations breathing meditations uh buddhist mindfulness is like just be with what is if it's long be aware of that if it's short and shallow be aware of that you don't need to take deep breaths you don't need to do any kind of weird moaning when you exhale uh, just breathe and just let the body breathe its own natural rhythm and be, bring awareness to it And it's you know, that intention, breathing in, I will experience the whole body. Breathing out, I will experience the whole body. Now, this is where um, they're mixing in the uh, Anapanasati, uh, where there's some intentional things that happen here. It goes on to say, breathing out, uh, breathing in, tranquilizing, I will tranquilize the body formations. Breathing in, I will tranquilize the body formations. Um, so actually in your meditation, setting this aspiration to bring tranquility to the body, which is different than four foundations. This is an uh, uh, Anapana instruction. Goes on to say, just as a skilled lathe worker or their apprentice, when making a long turn understands I make a long turn, or when making a short turn understands I make a short turn, so too monks. Breathing in long, one understands I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, breathing in short. And it goes on to say, one trains thus. I will breathe in experiencing the whole body. I will breathe out experiencing the whole body. Tranquilizing the body. Okay, next section. So before I go on to the next section, reflecting on that instruction about the depth, the duration, about setting that intention to bring tranquility. I never give that instruction. I don't know. You've probably never heard me say that. It's not uh, really in my wheelhouse of meditation instructions. It's not from the Satipatthana. It's from the Anapanasati. It's not something I teach, but it's part of the Buddha's teachings and it's part of what the monks are encouraging. Okay, goes on. In this way, one dwells contemplating the body in the body internally or dwells contemplating the body in the body externally or dwells contemplating the body in the body both internally and externally. What's it mean to contemplate your body externally? 
I don't really know either. Yeah, maybe with some of the temperatures, like the internal, it's 98, but out here it's 70. Maybe. Or, or picturing the, the corpse. The corpse is external, a kind of visualization. Um, it's a good question. They were asking, uh, who's the I, right? There's a lot of I language here. And I imagine that the question comes from the understanding that um, there's a lot of suffering involved in being identified with I, me, or mine. The teachings and the, the awareness of anatta, of not self, uh, that is, you know, central to Buddhism. Now, the Buddha's once asked, like, why do you use the first person narrative? Why do you use I and me and mine when you're also teaching us that the I is sort of uh, not so substantial, <laughs> not so reliable? And he says, I just use it because, uh, you know, it's just for the uh, communication. And so we say, I breathe in long, but eventually you come under to investigate, well, who, where, who is it? Who am I? What am I? Where is this I, me, and mine? And you start to realize, oh, it's just a, a process. And we, when we say I, you mean your consciousness, your memory, your body, your perceptions, your, all of those parts that make up this conglomerate of a self. So that's how the Buddha answered. And because he was, he was asked that question, why do you use the first person when you are teaching us that there isn't really a substantial permanent person here? I think so. It's a good question. When I was at the monastery, a monk asked me, and I'll ask you, is your awareness in your body or is your body in awareness? Where's, what, is, what is awareness? What, what's aware? Is your body aware of itself? Or is there some phenomena of awareness that the body is arising in? I don't have a great answer for it, but it's an important question. It's an important investigation, part of what we're doing. Next section, contemplating the body internally, externally, or else mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and repeated mindfulness. And thus one dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how one dwells contemplating the body and the body. And this is an important refrain, and it comes after every foundation. There's all of these meditation instructions, and then the Buddha says, or you're just mindful that there's a body to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And then 
when you can dwell independent, not clinging to anything in the world, you don't have to do the technique of 57 things to try to investigate in your mindfulness because you're just aware there's a body and you dwell not clinging to anything in the world. Does that make sense? So once you we've kind of taken this to a certain level, you no longer have to apply the technique. The technique is to get us to, ah, oh, there's a body here, not worth clinging to. Not worth clinging to anything in this world, independent, you know, not dependent on any circumstances, not dependent on anything being different than it is. It's how I hear independent. Then you don't have to memorize the instructions. Next part of the first foundation is the four postures. When walking, I am walking. When standing, I am standing. When sitting, I am sitting. When laying down, I'm laying down. So present time awareness of what your body's form is. Are you sitting? Are you standing? Are you walking? We do in retreat, we do a lot of walking meditation. But if we're honest, how often are you walking down the street and so involved in your thoughts that you're not aware of your walking you're kind of maybe vaguely aware that you're walking but you're really in the future or even sitting how often are you sitting not only in meditation like eric was talking about where you go into a dreamlike state but just sitting around and you're not really aware of your posture you're not feeling your body or laying you know and so part of the mindfulness is bringing clear comprehension bringing intentional awareness to the posture of the body sitting standing walking laying down and again the refrain so either bringing intentional mindfulness to each footstep mindfulness of walking mindfulness to the sensations of sitting of walking of laying down or mindfulness that there is a body is simply established to the extent necessary for knowledge and mindfulness. And the one dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Clear comprehension. Now here's um, and a really inclusive. So we don't only, the first instruction is here's how to sit down and meditate. Now the Buddha says, one who acts with clear comprehension when going forward and returning so this is walking meditation when you're going there be mindful you're going there when you're coming back be mindful you're coming back acts with clear comprehension knows when they're looking ahead or looking away mindfulness of like oh i just looked away clear comprehension when bending and stretching one's limbs so every movement of the body being aware of like okay i'm I have the intention and I'm gonna, with clear comprehension, straighten out my knee that's hurting and doing that rather than a reaction, an intentional mindful movement. I'm gonna shift now, being aware of that. When wearing one's robes, when carrying one's outer robe and bowl. So for us, uh, mindfulness of, of your clothing. I'm, I'm wearing clothing, clothing feels like this. These pants feel like this. These socks feel like this. I'm, you know, holding a book. Mindfulness, not just in sitting meditation, but well, what's the sensation of, you know, holding this book? 
What's the sensation of, you know, typing on the keyboard? Present time awareness of our activities, clear comprehension. When eating, drinking, chewing, tasting. So this is eating meditation instructions. Present time awareness of chewing, of tasting. How often are you chowing down some of your food and not really tasting it? Not even really mindful that you're eating because you're in a conversation or you're watching the television or, you know, thinking of what's for dessert. You know, there's that sort of tendency of our mind of like, uh, you know, while we're preparing the food, we're thinking about eating it. While we're eating the food, we're thinking about doing the dishes. While we're doing the dishes, we're thinking about what's for dessert. When we're eating dessert, we're thinking about what's on television. And we're kind of one step ahead. Mindfulness is while you're cooking, just cook. <laughs> Be present while you're eating, chewing, tasting, savoring, swallowing, smelling, feeling the food. I don't know how many of you have been on retreat. I know looking around a bunch of you have. On retreat, when you're in silence and you can just focus on your eating. And it's a really, I, I even put on the, on the schedule, time for eating meditation. So that it's not just a quick, pleasurable meal, but it's actually something we bring clear comprehension, mindfulness to chewing. I remember on one of my early retreats when they said, go be mindful of eating and see if you notice something you haven't noticed before. And I had never noticed how active my tongue was while chewing. Like, this is fucking amazing. Like my tongue all by itself, like pushes food to the front and then it like pulls it to the back, to the back here. And then it pushes it over here. And the tongue is just like, how does it not get bitten? <laughs> it's all over the place in my mouth while I'm chewing. This is, I was never even mindful of this before. This tongue is fucking active. <laughs> Eating, drinking, chewing, tasting. When defecating and urinating, pooping meditation. <laughs> Mindfulness of defecating. I once heard Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, give a long Dharma talk about all of the opportunities we have for mindfulness on the toilet. And think about that. Like, really think about, uh, you know, also the some some you know is there shame around it is there unpleasantness around it is are you somebody that like poops as fast as you can like get it out and get out of the bathroom and are you somebody that like kind of likes to stew in it maybe read the newspaper <laughs> hang out for a while no courtesy flush <laughs> mindfulness of defecating of urinating when walking standing sitting falling asleep, waking up. So tonight, try it. Mindfulness of falling asleep. What's the experience, sensations of falling asleep? Present time awareness of that heaviness that the body sort of falls into and the drowsiness and the, you know, what happens behind the eyelids as you close your eyes and you're about to fall asleep. Bring mindfulness, all that. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, start mindfulness as soon as you wake up. Mindfulness of like, oh, waking up. I'm waking up. I heard a sound. I'm coming back into the body, back into consciousness. Here's a practice for you tomorrow morning. 
try it every day this week and then report back next week. Do you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath? Test yourself, practice in that way. When I wake up, am I breathing in or am I breathing out? And if you just set that intention, and maybe you'll forget, and maybe it'll be five minutes before you remember, but then five minutes after you wake up, oh, mindfulness, I'm here. I'm in this body, present time, non-judgmental awareness. And then try to bring that through, taking your morning pee and your morning poop and brushing your teeth and having your coffee and eating your food. And so that mindfulness starts upon awakening rather than mindfulness starts at 7 p.m. when we hit the cushion. And it's, you know, I, I love that the Buddha put, you know, yes, there's all of these eyes closed, sitting still meditation instructions. And then there's the, this is just how we have to learn how to live. We have to learn how to live with present time awareness in all of our activities, clear comprehension. What am I doing? How does it feel? Am I meeting it with clinging? Am I meeting it with aversion? Am I attached to something? Am I dependent on something? Is there a, a way that I could be more kind, more compassionate, more non-attached in this situation? Defecating, urinating, standing, walking, sitting still, waking up talking and keeping silent mindfulness of what we're saying and also mindfulness of what it feels like to not say something even when you want to renunciation of reactivity just being silent what's it like to be quiet contemplating the body internally externally contemplating the body uh its nature of arising and its nature of vanishing, arising and vanishing. There, so this is impermanence. This is a teaching on how sensations arise and pass, arising and then they vanish. Whatever is happening in our experience is arising and vanishing. Every sound, every smell, every taste, every thought arises and then it vanishes. Maybe it repeats, you might have some repetitive thoughts. Every since every breath, you feel the in and then it vanishes. Every exhale arises, vanishes. So uh, teaching on focusing on the impermanent nature. And again, the refrain, or else mindfulness that there is a body is established, necessary for knowledge and mindfulness and dwelling independently, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how we should uh, practice mindfulness of the body. Now, I only got through the first two parts. Then the next, and I'm going to go through this next week. I'm going to bore the shit out of you. 32 parts of the body. And and the corpse reflection. So I didn't get to the 32 parts on the corpse. So we will do that charnel ground oh elements 32 parts elements and corpse so three more parts of the first foundation a few minutes for questions or comments before we end tonight
Is it useful to hear the, I know the language is a little repetitive and a little uh, confusing some of it. I hope it is for your contemplation, for your reflection. Jeff, go ahead. Hey, buddy. I want to see how you answered this question. Can we, uh, if we're mindful in all of our activities, as the Buddha just taught there, mm -hmm. um, can we mindfully lie and steal and kill, etc.? Um. I think that the, I think that the answer is probably yes. You could mindfully lie, still kill, and do all of that stuff, but you still get the karma for you. Still, you'd be mindfully creating suffering for yourself. Uh, mindfulness doesn't mean that you won't have the karma of the unskillful action that you're referring to. Um, but yeah, you could mindfully, with clear comprehension, act in unethical and unskillful ways. But a huge part of it, and you know, one of the we're talking about the seventh <clears throat> factor, the mindfulness stuff. But in the eightfold path before that, the Buddha says, if you really want to get anywhere with this path, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't you know, that sexual misconduct. Be be wise, be ethical. Um, could you be mindfully unethical? Yes, but you still get the bad karma from your lack of ethics. Is the way I think about it. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I, I answered that it, with the latter first, right? That this is a part. This is part of the eightfold path. It's, it's yeah. one of the bolts on the path. So, bringing it into the moral ethical um, you know, factors were important. But it brought up an interesting conversation, especially when it came to like mindfully using intoxicants. You know? Yeah. Yeah. To be continued. Thank you for uh, your attention, your practice, your contemplation of these very important teachings. Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization that is completely dependent on your generosity. Um, the only way that we exist and can continue to exist is by everybody giving what they see fit to give and, and, and pitching in to support the organization. Uh, I've been teaching this Monday night class on the west side of Los Angeles for 18 years, every single Monday night. And the only way that I've been able to continue to do that is because people pay the rent and give some donations. And, and the people that came before you um, supported us, and then you pitch in, and then the people that come after you, you're supporting, and hopefully you also stick around and and we uh, you know, build this thing together. So suggested donation, you know, think about what you pay for a yoga class, 25 bucks, 30 bucks. Think about what you pay for a movie these days, 15, 20 bucks. Uh, if you can afford 20, $25 donation for drop-in, please consider uh, something like that when you drop in. 
Um, if you don't have the financial means and five or ten dollars is, is all you can afford, give what feels appropriate to you. Nobody's turned away. It's very intentional that we do this um, free of charge. We want everyone to be included. And we also want you to get the experience of freely offering rather than being charged. You get the, the practice of generosity rather than fee for service. So it's, it's, it's very intentional in Buddhism that it's offered freely. If you really like what we're doing and, and can and want to and, and don't like the annoyance of donating every week, consider becoming a monthly supporter where you just say, I'm gonna give this month much every month and you can sign up on the website and say, I'm gonna give 25 or 50 or $100 a month to Against the Stream, it's automatic debit um, just so that it supports it, whether you're attending or not, which is nice to break free from that fee-for-service model and capitalist, I only donate when I go, rather than like, I just want to support this community existing, and whether I'm there or not. So please, please consider that. There's a link for donations online. And um, we have a two-night silent meditation retreat, the spring retreat, May 10th, 11th, and 12th. And we're doing, and it's open for registration now. I've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. You can now register. There's only 25 spots available. So if you're thinking about coming, register soon. It's right, it's going to be in LA, in, uh, in Echo Park on the east side um, that weekend of May 10, 11, 12th. And it's um, at this cool retreat center that's like right on the lake in Echo Park. And we'll be able to be in noble silence and a little bit of seclusion within the urban environment. and. I'll probably encourage people at some point to go do a walking meditation around the lake and kind of be in your practice in the city that you live in. So I think it'll be quite a cool retreat. And um, I hope that a bunch of you join us. People have already been registering. And i am uh, got some emails out to schedule a seven-day silent retreat for the seven or 10. I think I'll probably do seven uh, in October. So I'm just trying to find the right location for our fall retreat. And I'm working on an India pilgrimage. In November, I'm going to try to take a group of people to the pilgrimage sites in India where we'll go to Bodh Gaya and Saranath and all of these places where the Buddha was and where he was enlightened and where he was, you know, gave some teachings. And um, I'm working on it and I'm trying to do this thing with the India trail system. They have a, an India train. That, that um, and it's like a Buddhist pilgrimage train and they take you, you know, by train to all the sites. And so if you come, like we'll have our own, like against the stream train cars where everybody will be on the train every day to the next location. And it'll probably be somewhere between a 10 day and two week trip. And I haven't totally solidified it, but start thinking about if you wanna go to India with me in November, you're all invited. Probably bring about 30 people, so. Hopefully some of you will come. Many goodness that comes from our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma be shared with each other, with our loved ones, even with our enemies, offering this merit outward in all directions shared with all living beings. May each one of us be so mindful that we can dwell independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet.
See you next week. Mindfulness of breathing upon awakening. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.